Hello, I'm Zoe Pollock, Artistic Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Love and Wonder, a series of collected conversations recorded live at the 2022 Byron Writers Festival, held on the lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. This session, titled Wonder and Possibility, Why We Should All Read Children's Books, features Sarah Armstrong, Bronwyn Bancroft, and Isabel Carmody in conversation with Tristan Banks. Um, welcome to Wonder and Possibility, why we should all read children's books. We have an amazing panel. And before we get started, Bronwyn Bancroft, would you mind doing an acknowledgement of country? Thank you, Tristan. I'd just like to acknowledge the tenacity, endurance and care for country that has existed for, by the Bundjalung people in this area for 65,000 years and may we continue to respect the Aboriginal people of this country everywhere. Thank you. Thank you very much. This, uh, the theme, as you know, for the festival is Radical Hope. And I think there couldn't be a more appropriate way to sort of finish off your Saturday um, in terms of radical hope than with a, a, a session based on uh, children's books that are full of imagination and possibility and quite often optimism. But also, as we'll discover during this panel, some quite dark journeys to uh, dark paths to, to find those, those notes of optimism. Um, we have um, on my left Dr Bronwyn Bancroft, uh, who is a proud Bundjalung woman and artist. Uh, Bronwyn recently collaborated with her daughter Ella, who has also been on sessions at the festival on their first children's book, uh, Sun and Moon. Oh, there we go. I was going to get out my copy. <laughs> and uh, to her left, uh, Sarah Armstrong, a journalist, has written three novels, including Salt Rain, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin, and Big Magic is her first children's novel. And, uh, and to her left, Isabel Carmody, one of Australia's most highly acclaimed authors of fantasy. Her latest book is The, Vel the Velvet City, the final instalment in the Kingdom of the Lost series. Um, so could we please have a uh, round of applause for our panellists? Very good. Um, and I'm Tristan Banks. I'm the author of uh, middle grade novels like Two Wolves and The Fall and Detention and a new book called cop and robber for sort of 10 to 14 year olds that are sort of crime stories that hopefully explore big ideas. And today I'd, I'd love to kick off because, you know, we're all readers and uh, we've all read children's books, whether it was when we were kids or to children or to grandchildren. And I think reading is a great place to start. I'd love to know, um, if you wouldn't mind, we'll start, we'll start at, this, at this end and move along. Would you mind you telling me one of, the, one of the children's books that you loved as a kid and, and a children's book that you love now as an adult? Oh my gosh, you're asking me to return like four, five decades, Jesus. <laughs> um, I think, we, look, I grew up in an Aboriginal family. We didn't have books, um, to be quite honest. We had a set of the Encyclopedia Britannicas. Um, so basically I read the Encyclopedia Britannica, the whole volumes, because there was Enid Blyton, I remember the twins at Mallory Towers as having a particular impression upon me, but that was a library book, um, and I think uh, that was that's been one of my quests as a, a Bundjalung woman, um, completing 45 books, is to actually put our stories into libraries and into schools since 1990. Um, so yeah, I didn't we didn't really have any money to have books, so I can't really answer that question. Um, 
Yeah. Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> is there? A, I hear it's good. Captivating. <laughs> is there, especially the F? I loved F. That was my oh. favourite volume. Is there? Um, <laughs> is there a? Is there a, uh, a children's book now that you love that, or that has influence on your work? Oh look, I, I've got a four-year-old granddaughter, and uh, we read her. Her um, evening is uh, three or four books, and then two makeup stories. So it takes like. 45 minutes to get her to sleep. <laughs> I think Sally, anything Sally Morgan does um, is really inspirational for me. I think she's an incredible artist, an incredible writer. And I, look, I, I pretty well love most children's books, but I did do a literary prize for the State Library and had to read 600 children's books. Right. And I've got to say that maybe a third of them should have made it through to publication okay. and that's been being critical um, I think we've, we've all got stories but I think we really we really need to make sure that those stories have impact and meaning for those children and aren't just going into libraries without children actually accessing them and learning from them okay. yeah. interesting um, Sarah one from your childhood and one for, as an adult yeah look I'd say that um, in terms of a classic, The Borrowers by Mary Norton is just like to me, you know, it had, has everything and had everything. Reading it again as an adult, it just met all my needs. I just, it's a story about little people who live in, under the floors of a house and in the walls of a house and they borrow things from the, you know, full sized humans who live there. And yeah, I love that, love that. And in terms of like current reads, I think my top shelf uh, kids read is the Violet Mackerel series by Anna Branford. Uh, I think Anna Branford just nails a sort of gentle, tender, quirky character in Violet Mackerel that is, and just explores values and family issues and all quite complex things in a just beautiful way. So that, that would be my top pick for a contemporary book. Mm. Bravo. And Isabel? Okay, when I was a kid, we also had the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I think that's because you know those salesmen used with bad suits used to come to the door and guilt your parents into Crimpling. buying them. They give a speech that basically means your child will fail if you don't buy them. And my parents had two sets, and so that, and I did. They were unbelievable. I didn't know anything. We didn't have television. We we didn't have conversations. There were eight of us. There were no conversations with adults. It was all just belt feed the children and put them to bed. So I was left to roam in the Encyclopedia Britannica and there are only two bits I loved. One was somehow about gardening, some about kid gardening and I just loved the idea of a kid gardening, um, finding this place and learning how to garden. It sounds really boring but actually it was really interesting and I liked the names of plants. And then there was a bit in another, the other set of encyclopedias where, where there was a frog, a dissected frog and you could turn these laminated pages and see bits of the frog. And I just loved it. I would go back and it was like a secret, the frog's body. And sometimes <laughs> I think dissecting is really what I do when I write. And the other end of things, we did, we did all of the books that you've mentioned, I read too because I was a huge library addict apart from the fact that's where you can hide from bullies. It's also a great place to read. So I opened a lot of books in my life. The one I loved the most, that I, I, I read the Narnia books and the Lion, the Witch, you know, all of those books. I spent half my life waiting to get through the wardrobe door into Narnia where you could talk to animals instead of in this world. <laughs> and then, um, but the book that I loved the most was The Mouse and His Child. Oh, Any, uh, Russell Hovens, yeah. Mouse and His Child. 
And you were talking about reading to your daughter. When I, was, I used to read to my daughter, she would get to pick the three or four books and it also took 45 minutes to get her to sleep. And if she picked a book I didn't like, I would dutifully read it, thinking, and every few pages I'd stop and say, look how badly this is written. And she'd say, Mama, just read. And I would read and read. But when it was a book I loved, if I read a book I hated, she'd get one chapter and that was it. And I'd moan the whole time. And if she got something I liked, I would read until we both fell asleep. So, so I, I saw the difference between books that were just really boring. And I remember this conversation once where she said, afterwards we discussed the books, we would lay there and talk about the books, if they, if they were books I hated. And she would say, why don't you like it, this particular book, uh, this series? And I said, because it's boring. It's just a bunch of people I don't care about. I don't remember doing a bunch of thrilling supposed stuff, but I don't care about any of it. And I said, and it's not beautiful. And she was really little and she said, and Mama, what's beautiful? And I said, the mouse and his child is beautiful. Uh. And I read that to her and she said, oh yes, the mouse and his child is beautiful. She was so little and she could tell the difference between something that was sort of exciting, like, you know, chewing gum for the brain, and then there was the really deep stuff and she knew that as well as I did. So, and now um, Philip Pullman's Dark Material series. I love Philip Pullman as a writer. He's a kid's writer, sort of, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to, there were kids during the week that I was talking to in book week and they were loving his dark materials. Yeah. Um, I, oh, I, we, we didn't have Britannica. We had World Book, which I think is down market, right? <laughs> it's like, well a, it's like the dark world. web or something. And uh, <laughs> I... I, so we, and my sister was six years older than us, so every time I'd go to look up something for a school, um, you know, for a project or something, I'd open it up and the pictures were all gone <gasps> and she'd, she'd cut them out to put in her project six oh years God. earlier. And so, um, so I, I ended up, I remember I sort of carved one of the world books out and I used to hide stuff in the book. You know, when you, you didn't you have that dream of like having, carving the book out, you know, putting a hip flask, in, no, I, I was only nine or something, but, um, but putting some, hiding things in books was a, was a great uh, favourite of mine. Um, we all love to be read to and I think that's one of the great joys of, of all books, but children's books especially, they're meant to be read aloud. So I was wondering, Isabel, would you mind reading us uh, for, you know, a few pages of um, uh, from one I'm of gonna, your works. Yeah, I'm going to read from A Fox Called Sorrow. I didn't know Tristan was going to ask us to read and I just happened to have this on, on me be, because I wanted to show someone this nice soft cover. Um, but I often read this exact bit because th th one of the perceptions is that kid, kids' books are, are somehow soft and, and fluffy. So I just thought I'd, I'd read this bit. Um, so this is a, a, a bit where a little character called Little Fur, who's a bit bigger than the borrowers, but not that much, um, uh, comes to a place called the Beaked House, which is actually a church, but she doesn't know what that is. It's just a cross and she thinks of it as a pair of sticks at the mouth of a beak. So she goes to the Beaked House to get some advice from an owl. And uh, this is what happens. Little Fur noticed a fox sitting by the front step of the Beaked House. It was a big fox, but she could see its bones clearly curving under its dull red pelt. She sniffed and caught the hot, bright stink of pain and the dank odour of infection. Can I help you? she asked, going over to it. The fox turned its head to look at her. It was a male, she smelled now, handsome and well-formed, or he would have been if not for his unkempt pelt and his thinness. His deep brown eyes were not clouded with pain though, nor with confusion. They were full of intelligence, but their bleak expression chilled her. What do you want? The fox asked, 
There was an unfamiliar burr in his soft, flat voice that told her he came from somewhere other than the city. I'm a healer, little Fur said. I can smell that you're hurt. I thought I could help you. I do not wish to be helped, the fox said. Little Fur was taken aback. But you wouldn't be here unless you wanted help. Are you so wise as to know my thoughts and intentions better than I do? The fox asked coldly. Perhaps I do better to consult you than the set owl. However, I did not come here for healing, but to learn how to die. Little Fur thought she must have misunderstood. You're afraid you're going to die? I want to die, the fox told her in a clear, stony voice. But my will to live is too strong. I heard of the wisdom of the set owl, and I've come very far to see if she can tell me how to die. And now that you've satisfied your curiosity, you can leave me alone. Little Fur withdrew, troubled. She had never before had her healing refused. And I'll just stop there. Yeah, Thank nice. you. Wow. Accent Accent too. I feel like you are all of your characters, you know, you, yeah. you embody them. Do you read the audio books for your, for your work? I do, yeah. Oh. Borrow box, you can get them for free <laughs> and I will Don't read you that. to sleep. <laughs> um, can, you, can you share, Isabel, um, some of your thoughts on perhaps why, um, why should adults read children's books and, you know, what would they, what would they get out of it? If, they're not, if you're not uh, reading to a child or you're not reading to a grandchild or something, why should an adult read a children's book? Well, I mean, we all read them when we were children, so we have them in us. We're not just the age we are now. We're all the ages we've ever been, like Matryoshka dolls. And when you read a really good children's book, I think you read it on several levels. You read it on the level of the child who once read it. It's that beautiful thing of revisiting the child that read that book, of re-inhabiting that aspect. So you, it's not returning to childhood. We're grown-ups. We can't go back to being children. But we can experience and we can revisit. I'm just so much in favour of rereading, And I reread books very regularly and that includes children's books or books I've loved in my life. Um, I, I, I said before, I, I don't really see myself writing children's books. I was 14 when I wrote my first book, which is aimed at teenagers by the publishers. So I was the age. So for me, it's all about the character and authenticity of the character. And to find that authenticity, you find it in the Matryoshka doll that is the age of your character. So to, to, to read books of different ages, it's just activating different memories, different levels of your own character. And also really beautiful children's books are poetic. There's a broken language in there. Because a little kid, like my daughter, she can't explain why she loves something, but she loves it. She can't explain that she's grief-stricken in the language we would use, but she feels it just as much as we adults do. And so when you write through child characters, you're looking for that beautiful, broken, poetic language which is full of gaps of knowledge that are filled with imagination and it's beautiful language. Some of the most beautiful language that's ever written is in children's books. So there's that beautiful rhythm and cadence and poetry. Nobody wants to read a book that says, this will be good for you, child. This is how you should be. We adults know better. That's just nauseating and I bet half of those books you read in that competition were like that. The worst approach you can take, I think, to writing children's books is thinking that you're looking down when you mm. write. Don't write down, you know. So, so reading is just a... It, it's good writing, you know. It's just beautiful literature, depending on whatever age you read it. Good literature 
doesn't matter if it's realism or fantasy, children's writing or adult writing, there's absolute crap of, in all of those genres and really great stuff as well. So that's why you should read it, because ah. there's good writing. Ah, bravo. Let's get a round of applause. Um, no wonder you are Dr Isabel Carmody. I feel like there's so much in that that we could spend many hours unpacking. And maybe we should. Let's just settle in. And, no, um, we won't. But um, there's just, there were just so many uh, lines in there that sort of resonated with me, and especially that idea of not looking down and also leaving that gap for the reader, leaving space for the reader to think for themselves too and not, not writing cynically perhaps um, is you, you know, you, the best if, kind of books. Yeah, and, and that writing down comes when you... you you fill those gaps because you think they're too stupid to know yeah. if you don't tell them everything. So respecting them as readers is yeah. also part mm. of you know, being brave enough to leave the gaps. Mm. Anyway. Trusting them. Yeah. No, I love it. Sarah, why, why do you feel that, that adults should read children's books? Well, <clears throat> I think that I have this idea that you sort of graduated from you know, picture books to middle grade to young adult to literary... Well, literary fiction then even more pointy literary fiction <laughs> you know where do you end up and uh, then and it, it wasn't a sort of a really highly articulated idea it was just sort of this notion and I was writing adult fiction at that time and then I started reading to my daughter who's now 12 and it just took me back into the world of children's literature and that's when I realised how amazing it is to read as an adult and for me there was just a feeling mm. of... Well, I was reading it both as my, if you like, 12-year-old self and myself now, and there was just a feeling of immersion. It's like, a, like reading was everything to me when mm. I was a kid. It was my entire world because, you know, I didn't run a house or have... wasn't a mother or a, or a wife or a daughter or any of those things. It was just my entire world and there was just that feeling of utter immersion and the possibilities of the world as presented to me in those books was intoxicating. It was just like the world is, there are so many possibilities and I just felt myself on the brink of that. So when I read kids books even as an adult I, feel, I sort of return to that feeling which is a really mm. beautiful place to be because you know the possibilities, um, that, that doesn't feel as apparent to me in a lot of um, adult writing. So I, I think people should read children's literature to return to that sense of possibility and wonder. And um, I, I just I think that for me also the way I the the kids books I like to read and that I write there's there's hope in them. There is an inkling of hope, there are openings, there are possibilities and you know when I was writing adult literature I was like the queen of the ambiguous open ending you know I, I'm, they, you know, one of my books was published in German and I got all these like rude emails from the Germans just saying why did you end the book like that like there was no proper ending you should have tied everything <laughs> off like they really, they really hated the ending in, um, in Promise um, like I didn't tie everything up and so I was a bit of the queen of that but not in my kids books and I really love having everything, you know, I don't tie everything up like really tightly, but there's a good feeling when you finish because things come to a good, they come to fruition, they come to a good ending and there's understandings and realisations. And even if things have been hard and there have been some very hard moments, everything makes sense. And at the minute, I've got to say, with, you know, things are, there are, things are tough, you know. We have, <laughs> we have pandemics, we have wars, we have climate crisis. And for me, as a reader, I really love reading kids' books at the minute. It makes me feel good. Just, you know, it's that simple. Mm. 
um, Bronwyn, did you? Thank you very much. Thank um, you. Yeah. Well, yeah, bravo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> indeed. I'll be doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, Bronwyn, why, why do you? Why should why should everyone here be reading children's books? Um, well, it's a big question, but it, it, look, imagination. Um, over many decades, I've taught a lot of children um, art and been involved with them. And sometimes the parents come, of course, because they have to have a proper adult with them when they're going to events. And it's the adults that come up to me afterwards and go, oh my God, why did I stop doing art? Why did I end up being an accountant? What was I thinking? What was law doing for me? I was a promising ceramicist. Um, it, it's the world of imagination and I think that we need to gravitate towards imagination to solve the problems of the world. And um, imagination throws things up like balls in the air and when, it, when you can configure the future that you actually want to see and imagination is a segue and a, like a bridge to being able to change the way we perceive things as adults. And, you know, I regularly read um, children's books and, and I love the beauty of the artists and the illustrators. Um, like, I'm, I'm a full-time practising artist. I paint for a living but and do public art commissions and, and really big artworks um, for, you know, companies and I do my illustration as a dedication to being able to illuminate to people my colour around country and the sensitivity around what I feel for this country um, and not just the Bundjalung nation but the wider country. So I think it's imagination for me is the key to it and um, my alternative reading source is actually John Grisham and I've read all of John Grisham's <laughs> yeah. stuff because I don't actually want to think that much. I want to have a little bit of titillation around, oh, who did it? And then I go, I know who did it, halfway through the book. And then I'm right and I go, John Grisham, Grisham rules. And so I just, I read stuff like that, which is like, you know, my son and my daughters both hate the fact that I read that stuff. Right. But it's like a, an, it's a non-thinking space because I do academic work as well. So it's like, why academia like is really difficult? Yeah. Like, hello, I, I, there's I, no academics in the room, but it's difficult and dry. Grisham's The Firm is actually still a really good novel. I reread it oh, yeah, just recently. It's a gripping novel, isn't it? Terrible yeah. movie, but very yeah, gripping novel. Yeah, terrible movie. Um, I wondered if you wouldn't mind reading something for us. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I bought Alternatives. But I like this one. I was going to read from um, Ella's book, Sun and Moon, but they're her words. So I thought I might read my words. So this is, um, our family come from near Grafton. Um, so this is our ancestral home that I speak about. It's called Coming Home to Country. Um, can, you sh can you show the, uh, show oh, the cover to any the, the cover for people who would love to race out humans and purchase a copy? that get it. Um, three Hills to Home. Lines of country etched like wrinkles in a wise old face. I ease into the palette of leaf green, red rust, yellow ochre, deep blue and crimson, and walk with our old people. This is home. Draw in the breath of the valley, feel the breeze ignite the hairs on my body, enclosing me in the safety of my old people's arms. Listen to the bird orchestra sing an exhilarating song of the day. 
run to the creek, perch on a rock, slip into clear crystal water, lie on my back and gaze deep into the sky, watch clouds skirmish, feast on the poetry of each intricate image. A rolling storm drops a majestic downpour. The rhythm of the creek soothes me into slumber. I sleep across dreams of generations past, woven with journeys for the future. Cradled in the hands of my people, this is where I see, feel and know my country. This is home. This is peace. Wow. Bravo. Thank you. Um, that was very relaxing. I feel, I feel much more relaxed Just having heard that. Just come a little closer and yeah. you'll be able to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> is um, anyone sleeping? No. <laughs> that is, that is a, a good, one, good one for bedtime maybe. Um, Isabel, you were, we were talking earlier and you were saying um, uh, wonder and possibility. You were you know, questioning the title of this session and, uh, you know, in a controversial manner. And Talk I wanted about outing me. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you, you know, we, you were sort of, we were talking about those ideas of wonder and possibility and the ways that, they, that those ideas can be interpreted. But can you talk a little bit to that? Well, I, I guess the problem for me with the idea of wonder is it just, it sounds, I mean, it, it, it goes to a pr- an approach to children's literature that I don't love and that is that that you should leave out any of the bad stuff in children's books. And I just think they are out there, those kids. They live in the world and no matter what you want them to see, they see the whole world. And I think if you write Mm -hmm. a story which is just sweet and cute and uplifting and warm and full of wonder, if wonder can even be expressed in this simplistic way, I think it's not true. It's a lie if that's all you offer to them. And there's no hope if you're offering them only sugar a spoonful of sugar, it's not enough. What I think works much better is to offer them the whole truth and, and allow them to f- and, and find a story in there. If it, for me, there's always hope. There's always a climbing to hope. I want there to be hope. I want the world to be a better place. And for me, writing is always to ask a question that leads me towards something. Is it possible for human beings to be better? How? How can we be better, ethically and morally? So I write a book to find that out. So there's a journey to hope in that. And yes, it's through darkness, like you were mentioning these things, but at the same time, you know, you need both, which, which shows a spark of wonder or brightness better, a light, beautiful background or darkness. Sometimes, first of all, admitting the truth, saying the truth, letting it be there in the stories. You don't have to reach out and punch them in the face with it, but if that's the story you're exploring, it takes you where it takes you. It sounds funny for a fantasy writer to be saying these things, but that's, you know, you do have to go those places in your stories as well for children. And like I said before, just because they can't articulate things as we would articulate them doesn't mean to say they don't feel the full gamut of human emotions. Like Mm -hmm. kids grieving is often seen as a lesser thing than an adult's grieving because an adult can say all the words. But that doesn't mean those of us, those matroshka dolls of children in us that once experienced a death or, or the death of a pet, it's tragic and it's awful and they know what that feels like. And a story that engages those feelings and still finds hope, well, that's on us. If we can find hope and it's true hope that we can find, then that'll be true too. But if you write a story and you just write a hopeful story but you've got no hope, it's not true and it won't feel true. 
you know. So that's how I feel about wonder. If a, if a publisher came to me and said, let's write, and they do these things, write, write me a story about hope and wonder, I would say no because I'm afraid that's, that it wouldn't be me, it wouldn't be true, and thank you, I have my own stories to write, you know. Yeah. So. Sarah, did you have any thoughts on that in terms of your interpretation of, you know, uh, hope and wonder and, or, or, you know, rea- response to that? Well, no, I 100% agree with what Isabella said. I guess it's like I don't go into writing a story and think I'm going to write a story about this or about that. It's like I normally find a character, like there's a sort of seed of something that sparks an interest in a character and I get mm. to know that character. Like it's a very meandering path into my writing. It's, mm. I'm really feeling my way into it. I'm zeroing in on a character. I'm trying to find out what that character wants, what's in their world. And of course to create drama you need, uh, you need tension and you need things going wrong. I mean a story where everything is it's a spoonful of sugar, there is no drama or interest in that mm. story. So, you know, I... I I never approach a story of I'm going to write a story about this. It's just I get to know the character. I find out what they want. I find out what gets in the way of them wanting to do that. And then it's like the kinds of things that interest me just sort of bubble Mm. up to the surface. My particular peculiar interests and sensitivities and sensibilities. And they're all the same. Adult books, children's books. It's all sort of what's our responsibility to the people around us, you know, relationships of mothers and daughters and like all the same things come up every time whether I like it or not and so they're the things that I explore in various different ways and, um, you know, I'm, I'm really big on creating pace in stories and having my novels actually move along quite at a bit of a clip and yeah. sometimes my editors have to woo, slow me down right. a bit but, and that is always, there's always got to be, um, there's always got to be Drama and yeah. things going wrong and darkness to create. I love what you said about <laughs> she's come from the dark side of adult fiction. Let's oh, and, and her adult and novels are dark too. There's it, some really you know heavy stuff. And I love what you said about reading children's literature and, and wanting to return to that because I think as writers sometimes we give ourselves permission if we've been writing adult stuff when you write stuff and you write young characters you give yourself permission to have hope where you drive into that you lean away from it in adult literature mm. I think sometimes it's like I've got to be serious mm. and I've got to you know have these ambiguous endings because I'm grown up but yeah. I think when I'm you being clever and literary yeah yeah and I think when you <laughs> lean into that kind of I think mm. there's a joy in writing when you give yourself that permission to feel all those things that you might feel like you can't feel as an adult. That's one of the beautiful 100%. And when I started reading kids' literature again, and there had been like a couple, few decades gap mm. where I hadn't read any as an you know, adult writer and an adult mm. reader. Um, that's right, as a grown-up. <laughs> and um, when I read those books where, you know, the very best books, where the endings were just resolved, you know, Violet mm. Mackerel, just to hark back there, just resolved beautifully, gently, subtly... I just felt this kind of peace and mm. satisfaction and contentment that yeah. I just thought, oh, I'd want to be part of that. I mm. want to, yeah. I want to be part of that. And that's not a spoonful of sugar. It's no, you know, and it's you. It's not what the readers feel. It's actually what we as writers feel. There's actually a difference, I think, mm. between saying I'm writing that for children to saying I feel hope in that kind of in expressing. I can express hope with this kind of literature. That's beautiful. Mm. Sarah, would you mind reading uh, from your Love fine to. work? Thank you very much. I'm going to just read you the opening so you don't need to know anything. So they can go buy the book. <laughs> the day my mother disappears, the sky is the most dazzling blue I've ever seen it. 
Our circus has just arrived in Malimba and our convoy of trucks chugs down the wide main street, making sure everyone knows we're in town. Dad and I sit up high in the front truck. Cartwheeling down the road ahead of us is my best friend Kit. His arms and legs trace great circles through the air before he presses up into a handstand and flick-flacks along as if he has springs in his hands. Today he's wearing his favourite luminescent blue tights and singlets and he beams at the townsfolk who watch from the footpaths. Our clown Jerry zigzags about on his unicycle, squirting a water pistol at the crowd, while my uncle Vincent, the circus ringmaster, strides along in his shiny black top hat, arms flung wide, shouting an invitation to our show. We need a big crowd tonight. The big top's been less than half full for weeks. I've always liked Malimba with its sprouting palm trees and noisy, chattering rainbow lorikeets. Our circus comes here for three weeks every January and we set up at the showground in the shade of the giant fig trees. They have smooth grey bark and roots that bunch up above the ground like strange curved elephant's trunks. When it's almost dark or just light, the roots look like prehistoric animals crouched under the trees. I don't need Mum to tell me that those trees hold serious amounts of big magic. Life is good, I think, as Dad turns our truck off the main street towards the showground. Things have been tense lately with all the talk about not making enough money and everyone missing Mr Potts. But today, everything seems to radiate hope. The hot sun shining down on us from that glittery and possibly blue sky. The green pointy mountains in the distance. The townies clapping and laughing on the side of the road. Even the half-eaten bag of jelly snakes on the seat between me and Dad. Life seems so rosy without even the tiniest hint of how badly this day will end. And you can you can feel sort of Mullumbimby Showground. Yeah, uh, it, it is the, it is Mullumbimby Showground, but I had to move a mountain, so I thought if I put a mountain <laughs> right next to the showground, yeah, that's right, I would just be in trouble from the Mullum, Mullum folks. So I called it Malimba. But every single novel I've ever written is about Mullumbimby, huh. so. <laughs> Yeah. Just the way it is. Ah, I love the um, the description of the elephant trunks, like the, yeah. the roots. Like Those what, trees. What, what is, what's the wording? Roots uh, like giant elephant trunks or something? I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was oh, a prehistoric, but it was also the... They look like strange curved elephant's trunks. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So Tulsi lives in the circus with her mum and dad, the travelling circus, and her mum's a magician, but she's a real magician. Yeah. And how do you, how do you deal with... Um, Big ideas. Say you want to explore something about, you know, uh, I'm not going to put any spoilers in about this book, but um, yeah, how do you deal with big ideas and um, and and darker themes and issues in a in a kids book? And you know, how does that compare to you de- dealing with it in an in an adult novel? Do you feel like you can deal with those things in satisfying ways, or do you feel like you can only deal deal half deal with it in a children's book, or do you feel like you can deal with it in more interesting ways in a kids book? How does how does that go? I've had to learn to just be just let go a bit more and just let it rip a bit more in kids' books. I think I was holding back a little bit and my editors were like, no, make her nastier. Like, make it more tense, make it more dangerous in that moment. So that was really fun just to really let that rip. In fact, I had that same feedback with some of my adult work. It was like, no, you need to make this moment more dangerous. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I stopped writing adult literature was every time I had an idea uh, for for a novel, it would just sort of get grimmer and grimmer. And so... 
that's a, you know really one really fantastic reason to write kids books. I would have thought the Germans would have loved that. The, the Grimm. Well, they just didn't. Yeah, no, sorry, <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that. No. Um, that, that the, the, the third book was the Grimmer one. They liked that one more. Yeah. Um, casting us, but anyway. Um, so we'll delete that from the podcast version. If that's um, so I think that you know, in terms of the big ideas and the sort of you know characters, it's like I've learned to let go more with kids' books, and I've just learned that. Uh, it's okay for it to be scary and for there to be characters who are actually quite malevolent, if not murderous, mm. um, as long as things there's some kind of redemption. And it doesn't have to be a complete saccharine redemption, but some kind of redemption and some kind of understanding. Like, you know, there's a grandmother character that's really bad news, um, though there's kind of two versions of her uh, and uh, one of the versions gets some redemption. I mean, that's a bit of a spoiler, but it's like I... It's okay as long as things tie up a bit, I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. Uh, I felt okay to, okay to go there as long as there was some way through. But the kids are fine with it. Like it's, And, yeah. you know, with my daughter reading, she'll read, you know, really full-on stuff, yeah. um, and it's fine. And yeah, do you, just following on from that, Bronwyn, do you deal with any, uh, you know, sort of darker themes or ideas in your books? I live in the darkness. Um, <laughs> <coughs> you know, it's just... No, actually, I'm completely the opposite. Um, I'm eternally optimistic. I embed all of my stories around um, cherishing the stories of my family and their survival in this country. Um, and I, I don't think it's a point of eulogising or, or making them like greater than they are. I just think that the stories of Aboriginal Australia that are, that, are, that are told through the eyes of a family member who just adores the pri- and has great pride around the stories of your family. So my family, I think, are heroic and I, we have so much fat, like, you know, like we have so much death in our community, for instance. Um, that it's continuously a pall over our communities and I find that living in that existence makes me want to do very optimistic stories, incredibly bright colours and uh, really celebrating survival and the existence in this country and, and so I'm completely the opposite but I don't do... Like, I, I am actually talking to my editor at the moment, but I'm not doing anything bad by telling you this. But I am going to go to a bit of a, a darker story, um, which is about colonisation. Um, and I, I feel that the children are ready for this because they're the people that are the most honest mm. in this country. And to get into... Um, their minds like a sort of psychological twister and get them actually saying every bit of this country that you are standing on is stolen. When you go to a store with your mum and dad and they buy something, you have to pay for that and you have to recognise that that was a transaction and that has not happened in the history of this country. So I'm ready to get into those kids' minds and actually speak some truth so that we can have real change in this country, collaborate and work together to get greater outcomes which are based on Indigenous knowledge systems, which we are sorely missing. Yeah, well, yeah. Here, here. Um, 
while we're talking about sort of darker themes, I don't mind a darker theme in my books too, and I'm, I'm going to take uh, the liberty, I'm a participating chair, that's what Zoe told me I was, so I'm going to take the liberty of reading uh, a couple of pages from, from my book, Cop and Robber. It's about uh, a kid whose mum's a cop and his dad's a robber, and uh, he spends half the week living at each of their houses which makes things a bit awkward, but um, he's, uh, some, his mum's always asking what his dad's up to and his dad, he doesn't want to dob his dad in, but he also doesn't want to lie to his mum and one uh, night these bad guys come to his dad's house and demand hundreds of thousands of dollars that his dad owes them, um, but his dad doesn't have the money anymore and so uh, he has to pull off the biggest crime of his life in the next three days in order to pay them back. Um, so I'll just read you a little bit from the first chapter of the book. Uh, Chapter 1, Raised on Robbery. Nash is in the passenger seat of Dad's truck, the old blue Holden HQ ute, his work truck, parked at pump number 7. It's 11.42pm and Nash is playing a game on his phone. His eyes sting and he wishes he was in bed already. He looks out through the hot breath fogged side window towards the shop but his view is blocked by the petrol bowser. So he leans forward to to, um, peek around it and sees Dad at the drinks fridge black hood up, the bill of his lucky eels cap poking out, bandana over his face and Nash knows right away that something's about to go down. The service station attendant, an old guy with a big nose and a red cap, sits on a stool at the far right of the store near the cash register. The attendant looks on as Dad moves quickly towards the counter up an aisle between two rows of shelves. Nash ducks down, eyes peering crocodile style through the trickles of condensation that race each other down the glass watching events unfold through the widescreen of the petrol station shop window. Six months ago, Dad had promised Nash that he'd stop committing crimes, and as far as Nash knew, Dad had kept his word. But in the past week, Nash could tell that Dad was on edge about something. He has two strikes to his name from a year ago, one for break and enter, one for stealing tools from a work site. They were the only ones he was charged for. The judge said, one more conviction and he'll go to jail. Nash's left leg jumps up and down and he uses his hand to steady it. His knuckles are scabby from hitting the heavy bag with Dad. His leg wants to run. Every part of him wants to run, to disappear around the back of the shop and show Dad that he's not going to put up with this anymore. And once Nash starts running, there's no way Dad or anyone could catch him. But he doesn't. He watches, waits, pushes the thoughts away. Dad approaches the attendant. He doesn't have a weapon. He has two, his fists. He used to be a professional boxer and he's found it a bit hard adjusting to life since. He reaches over the counter grabs the guy by the front of his shirt. Nash flinches. He wants to tell the man it's all right, not to be afraid, that Dad's one of the nicest robbers he'll ever meet. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like, I like to put a kid in, a, in a, a, comp, a, a difficult situation and I think for that age, that sort of 10 to 14 age, um, it's really good if they have a, you know, a, a moral quandary, perhaps, throughout the book. Um, I try not to push that too much. I try not to write the themes too heavily. Um, how do you, Isabel, how do you get that lightness of touch? Because, I mean, you've got that slight remove of fantasy which allows you to explore big ideas, but how do you, how do you, how do you maintain that lightness of touch without um, pushing your themes too? Well, I, do, I guess I don't think in themes at all. I right. usually have a... It starts for me with a question of some kind. I think if you look at any writer's body of work, you, you'll see that they're answering one or two questions that they will spend their entire life, you know, answering. And sure. I would say across your 
canon of children's books and adult books, the questions will be the same. So you keep coming back to the same kinds of question and they're really the big questions like what are we for? How do I be a good person? How do I stay an individual and, and yet belong somehow in the world? What, what am I for? So I, whatever question it is that's driving me, I tend to start off by having it, it's something that troubles me a little bit and then I start to um, ask people what do you think well, what would you do if what would you do if and and get their answers so it's it's kind of in my head and I'm asking questions and I'm just sort of gathering information like I and then at some point a character well, when I was writing the gathering I remember I was traveling on a train and I love traveling on trains because they go at the back of houses so you can't see inside the house it's still private but the backyard is not set up for public viewing so you see things you wouldn't otherwise see. So coming into the back of Melbourne in a train and I was thinking about this question of gangs. When I was a kid I, I was beaten up by these kids and it was a gang and yet there were, and when I was a journalist I was doing a story about bikey gangs. So this was all in my head. Isn't a gang really just an extension of you know the gang you had when you were a kid? Isn't a bikey gang kind of just an extension of that? So I was thinking about this. What, what would you what would you pay? What do you give up in order to belong in the world? Is mm -hmm. anything, are there things you just are not worth giving up in order to belong? I passionately want to belong, but what do you give up? What do you have to give up? Mm. And I'm thinking this question, and the train was coming into the back of Melbourne, and I looked out the window, and you know how there's whole buildings, but every single window smashed and graffiti, who knows how it gets right up there on the top of these buildings? And I always want to go inside those buildings. And there was a boy and a girl standing near. And I thought, oh, they must be illegally in there, which was thrilling. So I watched them out the window. And I love it when you can't hear or you can't see. You just see something happening. And uh, the girl had red hair and she was tall and the boy was shorter. And they were having this intense conversation. And suddenly the girl just punched him in the stomach as hard as anything. He doubled over. And then they just went on talking like nothing had happened. <laughs> And so The Gathering, which won me Book of the Year, started with those two characters. They stepped up and that was Nyssa and that was Nathaniel and that was that story. So the question keeps rattling around. And for me, the character is... The age of the character is not aimed at, at an audience at all. I hate saying this. I don't care about who I'm writing for when I write because when you first write, you are the audience and it has to be interesting to you. So mm -hmm. it's what I care about and what people read is, it sounds horrible to say it, just the dead skin a writer has sloughed off. Right. It's, not, it's in the crucible that it's really, really... Those of you who write know it. That's the most exciting thing when you're doing your actual writing. And so the, the character is the, is the vessel for the question. And if that vessel, that vessel might be 12 years old is the best person to discover that in. And why I keep coming back to children is not because I'm writing for children but because I'm looking for the moment at which we become the people who will do the things in the future, the horrific, awful, terrifying things or the beautiful, brave, courageous things. What is the thing that shapes us as a human being? And so often it happens around you know, kids and teenagers facing something where they have to step up for the first time. And so that's that's how the question, the question is shaped for, uh, the character is shaped for the question, but it, it has to step up to me. And then I know the name of the character and the name of the thing. I have to know the name of the book before I start. I don't know how anybody can write something without knowing the name first. Mm. So, yeah, that's how it is for me. Uh, comes in that order. I wish you'd um, write your book on writing because I, I love <laughs> your, I love how you sort of start off with craft and then you veer off into sort of big 
you know, uh, big picture writing stuff and it's very um, thought-provoking as a writer. I, um, Isabel, my family and I went to Prague where I- Isabel was living in 2014 and um, Isabel very kindly showed us around the city and I was just saying before she set up babysitters and apartments and all sorts of... She was amazing. And I remember I was dealing... Um, trying to work on my book uh, Two Wolves at Two the time Wolves, and I was like, yeah. I think it's a crime story... Um, but I and I don't know anything about crime. Like I, I don't know about the, the crime genre kind of thing. And your advice was, forget about the genre. <laughs> just write the story, and it'll they'll decide whether it's going to be a crime story or if it's going to be a fantasy story or whatever the hell it's going to be, and who what the audience is kind of thing. And that was the best best advice. I, I carry that with me to this day when I'm writing a story. And and what and I think it ends up with books that are that are interesting stories mm. as opposed to being, um, you know, uh, paid by numbers uh, on a template kind of thing. Yeah. I think you were good. electrified by it. I mean, it's exciting to be around someone <laughs> who's... They also tell you the story which you can't make head or tail of, but that's sort of exciting too, but they're <laughs> excited by it. You were like that. Right. <laughs> Animated. He was half in she the She didn't other know room. what I was saying, but she was like, <laughs> I'm so glad you're excited. But, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, when he said two wolves, <laughs> I thought you were talking about your two sons. Um... <laughs> Can we please have a big round of applause for our panelists here? Um, yeah, look, Thank you, I, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2022. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com forward slash digital.